Good afternoon, everyone. It's Dr. Nigro again. Our next episode of Psychology Unplugged is always the highlight of my week. Uh, thank you to all of the listeners that we have worldwide. I appreciate all of your comments and feedback, and I make it a point each episode to acknowledge that because um, it, this definitely comes out of a place of, of humility and, and, and gratitude. And um, thank you to so many people who have in, in, entrusted um, entrusted me to come from various parts of the country and the world for neuropsych evals. And uh, something Julie and I were talking about the other day is, you know, during the pandemic, it was kind of like treat anybody anywhere, uh, obviously through the modalities of, of telehealth. And we're kind of giving consideration to expanding our licensure beyond Massachusetts in order to be able to practice um, across state lines. Uh, so something that we're going to consider, especially from a lot of the different states in the in in our in our country that. Um, tend to reach out to us uh, the most often. So that's something that's on the horizon. The other thing I was uh, thing I was considering doing was kind of building a consultant service because I can't treat we can't treat across state lines, but we can be more of consultants. So there's there's just options and we are two people um, you know trying to do this and, and respond to everybody in the world and still maintain our jobs of neuropsych evals and Julie doing psychopharmacology. So um, but we're very blessed because we are able to represent all the major disciplines in an ever-growing and changing field that continues to remain misunderstood, uh, miscategorized. And I think that's why, as I, I've said before, I've done so many of the episodes um, on borderline personality because it is incredibly underdiagnosed, misdiagnosed, especially in, an, in, in a child and adolescent population. And it is my frustration just as a neuropsychologist and diagnostician to see this happen, um, so that's why uh, I think that is probably one of the topics that I, I go back to the most because there's just so much to talk about. But today's topic, um, I'm going to focus on a disorder that gets often confused with dissociation. And this specific disorder is called depersonalization derealization disorder. Um, I diagnosed this quite a bit, and many people will come in, and as I'm going through my clinical interview, uh, people talk about dissociation, and that is a different disorder in and of itself, and I did do an episode, uh, so I'm not going to get into this dissociative identity disorder, but I did do an episode on that specifically. Uh, the old term used to be called multiple personality disorder, which never, ever existed. Uh, the book Sybil, if you've read that, please understand that it was completely fabricated. And rarely do people have this many different personalities. Um, but dissociative identity disorder is, well, people a lot, a lot of times say, I dissociate. And in, in, in both through, through doing diagnostics and asking the right questions and kind of parsing out and explaining symptoms, um, it's, you know, I mean, it can be dissociation, um, but a lot of times it, it's depersonalization and derealization. So what, 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 the, what, you know, the caveat I've said with every psychiatric condition is it has to cause social, emotional, academic, 
and or occupational impairment. So what depersonalization is, it's an experience of unreality, uh, detachment, uh, being outside, be like being in like an outside observer with respects to one's thoughts, feelings, sensations, uh, body or actions, like perceptual alterations, distorted sense of time, uh, like a feeling of like an unreal or absent self, and emotional and physical numbing. That's that's depersonalization. Okay, that's not. This is not in the uh, category of psychotic disorders. This is not psychosis. Derealization, these are experiences of unreality or detachment with respect to like the surroundings, like individuals, uh, they, they feel like they're, they're they, like uh, things are unreal, uh, dreamlike, uh, foggy, lifeless, and like um, visually distorted. Uh, so again, this is, it's actually much more common than most people think, and and, 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 and you know, the, going through my notes, I've tried to be more organized in doing these podcasts, especially when we've talked about the specific disorders, because I know there's a lot of students and people in the profession, so I've tried to organize some of these into much more manageable, because um, I can't believe how many people take notes, but, and I know I talk fast, but I will I, I work on slowing down, but bear with me. So if we look at really like, okay, what is this whole thing, this, the, the, you know, what are these essential features of like depersonalization, derealization? It's really, they're, 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 they're persistent and recurrent episodes uh, of depersonalization, derealization, or both. So you, you can have one or the other or both. A lot of times from my experience, most people tend to have both, but, um, and then the episodes of depersonalization, again, it's that, um, it's a feeling of unreality. And a detachment from, or an unfamiliarity, unfamiliarity, unfamiliarity with oneself, uh, or certain aspects of the selves. Again, not psychotic. The person typically feels like detached from their entire being. Like, I have people say, like, I am no one. I don't know who I am. I have no sense of self. Again, this is not a personality disorder. This is not borderline. This is not dependent. But they feel like I kind of don't know who I really am. And this is during like like deep depersonalization, um, and they, they can also feel like subjectively detached from aspects of their own self, like like hypo emotionality, um, which is like I know I have feelings, but I can't feel them. So sometimes you see this on patients on high doses of of antidepressants or different medications. Like I know I'm sad, but I don't feel sad. Uh, I know I'm happy, but I don't feel happy. So that's really what hypo emotionality is. Versus hyper-emotionality, you can look at that as being, you know, what we call emotional ability, and you would see that in, in maybe sometimes in bipolarity, uh, obviously in borderline personality. Um, so, it, and, you know, the, the, like the hypo, uh, with a hypo-emotionality, it can be like thoughts, my thoughts don't feel like my own, uh, my head's filled with cotton, my head is foggy, I don't know what, 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 what are my thoughts or what are somebody else's thoughts. Um, and then like sensations like, like, um, proprioception, hunger, thirst, even like sexual libido can just feel this disconnected. And there seems to be like a diminished sense of, um, of agency, of, by agency, like urgency, like feeling robotic, uh, very automatic, like lacking control over their speech or their movements. Again, not psychotic, not, this is not organicity. Uh, and the depersonalization can sometimes, um, 
it, 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 sometimes people say it's like it feels like an out of body experience, and a lot of times in my experience in in, in diagnosing um, depersonalization, derealization, there's a lot many times a history of trauma, but not to the extent where it manifests a dissociative identity disorder, but can manifest uh, is highly comorbid with extreme levels of anxiety. Um, and anxiety from from a neurochemical perspective is, you know, the the sympathetic and the parasympathetic, the sympathetic nervous system is in overdrive. It's releasing excessive amounts of, of glutamate, and, and and people get into a heightened state of um, maybe a fight or flight response. Um, but you know, the unit the unitary symptom of depersonalization really consists of um, you know. Anomalous body experiences, the the unreality of the self and the perceptual alterations, uh, emotional, physical numbing, and uh, temporal distortions, which is kind of like temporal, not in the sense of like temporal lobe, but temporal in the source of like what 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 year am I in? What 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 um, what time is it? Uh, this feeling of just kind of, uh, of of disconnect, but again, not psychosis. Okay. Now, if we switch over into derealization, these episodes are, are are have like a they're really characterized by feelings of like unreality or like detachment or like this unfamiliar unfamiliar uh, unfamiliar why can't I say this word unfamiliarity with like the world um, or objects and people or animals and the individual kind of feels like they're in a fog or dreamlike state. And people will say like there's kind of like this glass wall, and I'm an outside, and I'm an outsider looking in. Um, and derealization is, is is usually accompanied by visual distortions like blurriness, uh, sometimes heightened uh, acuity, which would make sense, especially if somebody has a history of trauma or is an elevated state of their fight or flight response, because during fight or flight response, the sympathetic nervous system diverts. Um, diverts um, blood flow and oxygenation to areas because it's about survival. So heightened visual acuity would certainly be necessary if you are in a constant state of fight or flight because you are perceiving, you be hypervigilant around your environment to safeguard against any perceived threats to the sense of self or even physical safety. Um, so that's pretty common. Um uh, sometimes people report like 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 seeing things in two dimensions, or sometimes like these exaggerated three dimensional figures. Um, what's called like uh, micropesia or uh, macropesia. Um, auditory distortions are they can occur where like you know the voices or sounds are kind of muted or heightened. I I haven't found that to be a very common thing that people have experienced. Uh, I have had people who've experienced it, but it doesn't seem to be as common as some of the other symptoms. Um, and people who, who experience these symptoms, they often report that they feel like they're crazy or they are going crazy or they are losing their minds. Um, and they feel that they, sometimes they feel they have brain damage because these are some, there are physiological symptoms associated with it. Even though this is a psychiatric condition, um, you know, we're not talking about like Cartesian dualism where, you know, the mind and body are distinct entities. You know, the mind and 
body are one and of the same, and you can get into philosophical discussions about that, but in the end, there's only one organ, and that, that is the brain. Um, a common association, a common um, symptom with these with the sense of, is, is this altered sense of time. Like sometimes time is moving too fast. Sometimes time is moving too slow. And I've seen people like check their watches and kind of like work on, you know, Julie's mentioned kind of like grounding techniques. And I've had people kind of, you know, set your Apple watch and like, let's see what a minute really feels like. And I'm going to set mine for 30 seconds or 60 seconds. I'm going to have you set yours for 30 or 60 seconds. And let's just see what our own experiences are. And I think when you become more grounded to paying attention to objective data, just like helping people realize during intense attacks of anxiety, using like a pulse oximeter or using uh, taking your pulse to get, you know, objective data because the mind could go, you know, take us into so many different directions and it could be incredibly uh, frightening. So, you know, the people often kind of will talk about like vague somatic symptoms and, and, and somatic basically means physical, um, tingling, lightheadedness, um, you know, like kind of like, like, like my head is like, like I said, like head is filled with cotton type things. Um, anxiety, depression are, um, com are also common features. Um, and individuals with this disorder have also been found to have, um, you know, hyperreactivity to emotional st stimuli. So they, they don't have a typical response because they, they, they're living, they're, they're experiencing this detachment from themselves and detachment from time and space but again in a sense that is non-psychotic that is not based in you know brain damage or anything like that uh and and you know sometimes these symptoms can last uh just a few minutes to a few hours uh to a few days it, it rarely do, do these symptoms last for you know months and months and months um so that you know it's not uncommon. Uh, the, the average age of onset, I'd say, is probably mid-teen, 16, 17, but it can also start in early childhood and uh, middle childhood. Um, and the course of this disorder is actually pretty persistent. And it can be incredibly frightening. And in, in a lot of individuals, the, the symptoms kind of wax and wane considerably. Um, and... You know, it, it, it can be, a, you know, lifelong in terms of, of prevalence, um, but, you know, exacerbation of symptoms can be triggered by a variety of things, such as uh, in, increase in depression, uh, effective instability of bipolarity, um, uh, what else, um, um, it, it, like I said, obviously anxiety, um, but you know, sleep can definitely be disturbed as well. Uh, sometimes you'll see, you know, uh, movement disorders where the person's gait is perceived to be unsteady. So, like, you know, what? So, what? What puts people at risk for this? Um, so, individuals with who have like depersonalization, derealization, are usually characterized. Um, by what's called like a harm avoidant temperament, uh, immature defenses, and uh, dysfunctional schema. So if you think about avoidant interpersonal, uh, harm avoid interpersonal, that would be somebody who lives a very cautious lifestyle. And again, that could be as a function of 
Um, and this is where, you know, therapy becomes incredibly useful. You know, testing is able to kind of figure out the what. It's not always able to figure out the why. But, again, getting the narrative of someone's history uh, usually helps me get, a, get an idea of where this, is, where this might be coming from. Um, but there's really kind of this, this, this um, harm avoidance. Uh, you would think, okay, harm avoidance would make sense if the sympathetic nervous system is overactive because you're in the fight or flight response. And oftentimes if someone has a history of trauma, I mean, we're designed to do basically two things, uh, procreate and survive. And, you know, physiological survival, uh, I think, was based on our evolution. And as we've evolved over the years, uh, psychological and social survival are much more complex factors that are not as measurable. So if you, you know, physiological survival, you could, you could see that through, you know, somebody working out or taking karate classes or, or self-defense classes, where psychological survival is, is a lot more, uh, the nebulous, although it is something that can be worked on and, 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 and definitely developed, um, there's definitely a clear association association between this disorder and and, and childhood interpersonal uh, traumas. Now, it doesn't always have to be like sexual trauma, uh, which is linked very much to dissociative identity disorder. Again, go back to that episode for more information. But some insult to the individual's developing psyche has placed them in a, in a place where they can easily get into an altered state, again, non-psychotic, an altered state of perception about their own sense of reality, their own sense of time. Uh, so correlation does not equal causation, the fundamental principle of statistics. So, But there is a strong correlation between early childhood experiences, um, but, you know, emotional abuse, emotional ne neglect, uh, are probably the most strongly correlated and associated uh, things that may have happened with this with this disorder. Again, childhood neglect, childhood abuse, obviously is going to put somebody in a state of being hypervigilant. Um, and, you know, it's possible, you know, one, one theory is that depersonalization, derealization, as uncomfortable as it may be, is the body's way of disconnecting from whatever may be happening. Um, and usually people are, they're freaked out about it, but I think once you're able to put a name to it and people kind of have a grasp of what this is, uh, you can, you can definitely work through this, uh, from a psychotherapeutic standpoint, whether that is straight cognitive behavioral therapy or, you know, EMS. MDR, which is something we haven't covered yet because I'd like to have uh, one of our close friends and colleagues uh, cover that topic. It's a very specific technique for the treatment of different types of trauma. Um, you know, there, 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 there's proximal, you know, components of this disorder, like, you know, interpersonal things, financial, occupational, depression, panic attacks, drug use. Um, uh, some, some of the, you know, symptoms can be can be induced by some by by substances. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, cannabis, hallucinogens, ketamine, MDMA. Um, uh, so substances play a major role, and is something you know is is kind of a caveat to a lot of the different disorders in the DSM. Is are you know. Are you ruling out the physiological effects of a substance or even perhaps a medication?
Um, so, you know, it, it's always crucial to rule out the physiological with any disorder, when it's, especially if there's an acute or insidious onset, ruling out the physiological is, is, is crucial because if there's something physiological that's going on, uh, sometimes it can be treated through a specific course of antibiotics or a, a surgical procedure, independent of what it is. When there's insidious onsets uh, of, of physiological symptoms, please see your primary care, your primary medical provider, and explain the symptoms to them. Um, you always want, if, if that's ruled out, then it's kind of relegated to something being more what we would call psychogenic in etiology. Um, so the symptoms, you know, the consequences of going through depersonalization, derealization are highly distressing, and there's a comorbidity with a lot of different disorders, primarily, in my experience, trauma, depression, anxiety, panic, uh, and it can definitely impact someone's functioning in their, in their interpersonal relationships, in their occupational relationships, in their... Um, romantic relationships but again this is a non-psychotic disorder but it is associated very much with trauma but please do this do not confuse this with psychosis and do not confuse this with a personality disorder and do not confuse this with dissociative identity disorder um so how do you help somebody who is has dissociation well, dissociation is julia mentioned how do you help somebody with dissociation that is a, that is a trauma very specific um, technique for trauma that I'm not going to get into, but dissociative identity disorder is very different than depersonalization, derealization. So dissociation is totally different. I'm just talking about the clients that I've had that dissociate and they say they're having dissociate, they're in dissociative states while they're in the car, while they're out, and they lose a sense of time. Yes, that, but I, like I was saying, I, that's often clarified, and, and in my experience, it's generally not dissociation. It's depersonalization, derealization. So what's the difference? The difference is dissociation is um, when an individual has experienced, in many cases, trauma, and they develop alternative, and I'm giving you a very simplistic explanation, they give you very different um, identities. Generally, one of the identities is a, a punitive voice or a punitive identity that you deserve this, you're horrible, you're awful. Uh, a second one is a, a regressive version of the self, and a third is more of a protector. That's the dissociative identity disorder. And I think that's a really important, uh, the, the caveat is in identity. And that is treated through uh, trauma work by somebody who absolutely knows trauma. I have worked with people, but from a cognitive behavioral perspective, I usually will refer people uh, to colleagues who are certified and trained in EMDR for this specific type of work with dissociation. So a lot of times people will, will say, I dissociate, but when I explain the difference between dissociation versus depersonalization, derealization, that, that's they're like, okay, that makes more sense. Not everybody who has a history of, of, of trauma or sexual abuse, like I said, childhood neglect and childhood abuse, not specifically saying sexual abuse, is linked very much to depersonalization, derealization, because 
at that early childhood developmental period, the, the mind is put, the body is put into a state of, of constant fight or flight. And when every, with depersonalization, derealization, people have a heightened sense of uh, being attuned to their environment, looking for a constant perceived sense of threat. And if they can disconnect that environment or the, that perception, as distressing as it might be, I think in many ways it is a coping mechanism. Self-preservation. Yes, not necessarily an adaptive coping mechanism because it's, it, it's not adaptive because it's causing the person distress stress so you know that i think that's an important point to get across is this is that we call this a disorder and i'm i'm much more of the scientist practitioner model versus sugarcoating things and saying well you don't have this and i had somebody go to some clinic and for borderline and they're like well we don't like to call a borderline personality disorder we like to just say you have features and, and you know that's a different topic I mean, you know my perspective and you know that it, it just irritates me with that kind of stuff but the depersonalization, derealization is totally different than dissociation. But I agree with Julie. A lot of people will come in and say, I dissociate. They're not dissociating. They're just having this sense of disconnection from their, themselves, disconnection from their emotions, disconnection from their environment. If you're, if you're at all interested in dissociative identity... Um, I did an episode on that. Right. Dr. Judith Herman is an excellent... Uh, she wrote a book called Trauma Recovery. And she's worked a lot with children and adolescents and adults with trauma um, that happen to have dissociative identity. And she goes on in great detail to describe how it is an act of self-preservation. Um, the depersonalization, derealization, I think is a little more confusing. And it's not easy to treat with medication. Um, it's similar to having a panic attack, except... You're just sort of checking out and checking back in. And when you check back in, you know, did I drive somewhere and I don't remember? It's a little bit like when you're driving and you get somewhere and you forget how you got there. Wouldn't you say? Mm -hmm. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. It's like when you're, you know, you drove yourself somewhere, but at the same time, we've, I think we've all experienced that. It's like, wait, how did I get here? You know, I don't. But like, the, like I was saying, like the, you know, in the, in the depersonalization, like I have no sense of self. I have no sense of of, of where I am. Uh, derealization. I have no sense of time. That's not psychotic because in psychosis, it will be a voice saying, "You're awful. You're horrible," and that can occur in, in dissociative identity disorder because that's a function of severe trauma. Two completely different disorders. But I'm just coming from the perspective that I, I hear a lot of the times I dissociate. And dissociation is not depersonalization, derealization. So derealization, depersonalization, I think, is, an, is a body's response to some transgression against the, the sense of self, uh, the physical self or the cognitive self. Both are interconnected, but it's, it's a way of... Uh, like I said, Julie said self-preservation, but I, I would say, if, like I said before, it's not adaptive if you're experiencing distress and impairment, and, it, and it, it, it's impairing your ability to function effectively, maybe to the point that you don't want to leave your house, and maybe to the point where you don't want to be intimate with somebody, or you, or you had an experience. Of and again, that's why it's so important to rule out, because a lot of medications can cause like, whoa, I don't know, how do they wake up there? How do they get, you know get that so substance abuse it has to be ruled out um you know the high you know the major you know like i said the drugs i, I had mentioned you know mdma and even marijuana the hallucinogens because they will call well, they will cause altered senses of reality um that's why it's really crucial to, you know and i think for for therapists 
if if you have a patient who is experiencing this, to really have an you know an honest conversation and not a judgment thing. You know, X does cause Y, and um, you can pretty much find the timeline. Like, okay, when you're in these situations, this is when you're most likely, and this is where journaling becomes very effective and creating a timeline. Uh, of when symptom manifestations start to, uh, symptom exacerbation starts to manifest itself is, okay, it seems like every day, like at three o'clock, you know, you start to have this experience. Is it always that linear note? I'm just giving you a very simplistic example. So journaling is really important that the symptoms are pretty consistent. You can get, you can get that from your patients and, you know, the DSM and other books will be able to lay that out. But if somebody's getting into these, this state of depersonalization, derealization, having them journal it out and find a pattern it could be certain people they're around it could be uh, you know you know certain places that they're driving past that remind them of previous experience where some transgression took place it could be smell smell is the most powerful trigger of memory um, so you know it could be someone just walks in and this is sometimes what's hard with doing work when there is trauma is you know if we know that you know the um, you were horribly abused by your aunt and she wore this specific perfume and okay one don't ever buy your partner that that perfume uh stay away from the perfume aisle at your major uh retailers but it could be sometimes you're in an office building for whatever you're going to register your vehicle and you smell that and it could bring you back to that state of 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 trauma that sometimes we can't always avoid everything in the world uh, but we can certainly become more aware of the things uh, when you're suffering with, with, with trauma or dissociation or even de depersonalization, derealization. It is linked to somewhere. Anything else you want to add? Have you ever dealt with somebody who's in a derealized state and in real time? I've I've di I've diagnosed it. Um, I have I have worked with people who. Yes, yeah, I have. I mean, not doing as you know a lot of therapy, but I I have worked with people, and what's crucial is getting them to a sense of like I said of, of grounding techniques. Mostly when people feel like a sense of like they're disconnected or they're not present, uh, having them just go you know let's take a walk outside. You know what do you see? Bring trying to reorient them to to, to the present. Um, you know, can you hear the sound of my voice? Uh, progressive muscle relaxation, deep breathing, helping them gain a sense of, okay, I am here. I can feel my skin. Maybe maybe give them a handshake. Do you feel my hand? Yes. Okay. Can you, can you hear the sound of my voice? Can you see my desk? So grounding people back to reality is a crucial part if they're sitting in front of me. Uh, again, doing diagnostics, you know, I, you don't, I, I don't see this much, but you know, to answer Julie's question, I have worked with people, not necessarily from a treatment perspective, but it has come up in, 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 in doing diagnostics where people feel that, especially, I think, I, I would say it especially happens when I get to the questions where I'm talking about childhood history, parental relationships, trauma, stuff like that, where people might start to go back or, or start to experience some of these symptoms. Obviously, major, you know, caveat for, for you know, any healthcare provider is do no harm. 
But, you know, as somebody in my profession, data collection is, is crucial in being able to observe this. Um, and I think it's really important, like I said from the beginning, to help kind of parse out because it really, most people will come in and say they dissociate. And that is a very legitimate disorder in and of itself that requires a very specific uh, skill set and treatment. It can be treated from a cognitive behavior perspective. Uh, EMDR, you self, it, it, whenever you have trauma, you want to work with somebody who has experience in, in doing trauma work um, because it, it requires a very uh, specific skill set. You know, there's trauma-focused cognitive therapy. Uh, EMDR is a very specific technique for trauma, but um, to answer Julie's questions, yes, I have seen it, but I'm not, you know, again, that's not in the context of treating it long-term. I also think when you're treating um, anything related to trauma, um, touch can be very uh it can be very uh, complicated and complex. So if you're trying to ground somebody or ground yourself, but if you're with somebody who's having an experience and you know that they have a trauma history, sometimes, you know, let's say, for example, like a, a war veteran would have maybe a very, um, you know, their reactivity to you know, a loud sound, a bang, not necessarily something that happened during war, but that will be a similar, um, you know, a trigger for them. Whereas somebody who has been violated and um, abused and harmed physically um, may not like touch. So touch can feel sometimes as very encroaching and triggering for a lot of people as well. And in those situations, I would have somebody maybe, I'd have them hold my pen just to feel something tangible. But I have had people with, because we live uh, on, on the ocean and we live by uh, cranberry bogs, um, a lot of times the helicopters will sometimes fly over. And I have, in very few instances, have had people who've been in combat situations fall on the ground. Um, because they're going back to a place that they never want to return to again. So I, I, I have seen that. But that's what I said about, about the world being unpredictable. Um, but I at least wanted to revisit, I at least wanted to bring this disorder up because I, I hear uh, a lot of people don't even know this is a disorder. And it, it's so oftenly, so often confused with, with dissociation. Um Certainly, you know, talk to your 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 therapist, uh, your medication provider, um, you know, your primary care, especially if you have these this insidious onset of you're losing track of time and you feel a sense of dis, you know reality. You definitely want to talk to your primary care. You definitely want to rule out is there possible epileptiform activity. Uh, onset of seizure activity because there are a lot of physiological symptoms that can mimic this, especially loss of time. Uh, you don't typically people generally don't lose autobiographical information, um, but again, I would always if somebody's experienced this, have the you know have the medic have the medical um, have the medical piece definitely in the uh, pathophysiological piece ruled out. So. Just an introduction to depersonalization, derealization. You can have, it's diagnosis both, but you can have one, you can have the other. Uh, in my experience, it's often both that are co-occurring at the same at the same time. So hopefully this was helpful. Um, appreciate all of your comments and feedback. Uh, Julie's put me on the spot here, all the questions. So uh, until next time, uh,
Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Reach out to me through psychology today at outlook.com. Reach out to me through psychology unplugged at under psychology Instagram, psychology underscore unplugged underscore. You can contact me directly at 617-750-9411 East Coast Standard Time in the United States. Until next time, take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Be well, and I will talk to you guys. Thanks.